It's good to be back at Prairie. I'm always a little torn um, about the opportunity or responsibility to come here, and I have not done so very often in the last number of years because I'm very aware of my responsibilities at Bible school and trying to give that priority, but decided we would do it this way this year, and it's good to be back. And I won't preach about the Lord's Day this morning, but yes, I do remember I did that once. Our text this morning is from the book of Hosea. You can turn there, but it'll be a few minutes before we get there. I don't always do it this way, but this morning I'd like to begin with a question, or maybe it will feel like a riddle, I'm not sure. Some time ago, I was reading a familiar account, and in that account, I found a verse. In that verse, I found a very little story that I didn't know or remember reading before. And I like when that happens. In that story, there was a name, and that name is your riddle this morning. So, I'm asking you to think about it, but don't say it as soon as it comes to your mind, because I want to see if others can get it as well. So, my name is Jedediah. Anyone know already who that is? Just raise your hand, don't give the answer. He has another name, that's what we're looking for eventually. I was a king. I got my name from God. He sent a prophet to my parents with this name. And the meaning of my name was in itself a message from God to my father. Now my parents gave me another name, and that name is more familiar. That's what we're looking for here. That name also had significant meaning. So there was two names, and they both had a significant meaning. Anyone know who we're talking about yet? You'd be doing really good if you did. That would be ten points. But we're not keeping score. I built a wall around Jerusalem, and my older brother died before I knew him. I'm still looking for the first hand, so ten points to the first hand. What is my more familiar name? The name my parents gave me means peaceable, but the name that God gave me means beloved of the Lord. Next clues get kind of broad, so we'll have a whole bunch of hands coming at once here, probably. When I went to Gibeon, God appeared to me in a dream. If I told you the dream, you would all know. I was not the oldest son, but I was anointed king while my father was still living. The next one is always the giveaway. I was a collector. I collected horses, and I collected wives. And the horses caused me less trouble than the wives. (laughs) Now you know. Who am I? Solomon. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the account in 1 Samuel other than a couple verses, and you don't need to turn there. But you know the account, and and it's a sad story. The backdrop for this, uh, these verses that I want to read, 
sad account of adultery and deceit and murder. Second Samuel chapter 11, we read of David's sin with Bathsheba and his choices that followed, the path of covering and, and uh, lying. In chapter 12, the Lord sends Nathan to confront him about it, and David sees himself and, and the, the brokenness that followed. We read of his repentance in Psalm 51. In chapter 12, verses 15 and following, we read of the child's illness and David praying. David fasted for the child's life. He turned his face to the wall and, and he prayed and prayed. Maybe God would spare the life of the child. But the child died. Two verses from Second Samuel chapter 12. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bare a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet... And he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. So we have Jedediah because of the Lord, beloved of the Lord. A marriage that began with a trail of sin, deceit, led to heartfelt sorrow for that sin and grief. I believe David took personal responsibility for the sickness of the child and and the, and the death of the child. He prayed, he fasted, he refused to be comforted. But the fruit of that godly sorrow and repentance was beautiful. God was pleased. New life brought joy where sorrow had been. And that baby that was born rose to greatness. He was promoted to the throne above all his brothers, and that's who we're talking about here. We don't understand the sovereignty of God in that. We don't understand why this child needed to die for David's sin. David had other sons as well. Why was it this son who was chosen above the others? Chosen to reign. And in his kingdom, the nation enjoyed peace and prosperity above that of any other time. So, just understand the picture. This began with sin, began with regret, began with um, reproach on the name of God because David had done this. But God worked through that marriage. He brought a king who reigned in greatness. God worked beauty and joy in the place where sin brought trouble and sorrow. And I'm going to say that nobody saw that coming. They didn't predict that. But God in His grace has a way, when we respond well, He has a way of redeeming those places of trouble for His glory, for His ultimate glory. And that's, that's in essence, the theme of the message this morning. Now, this is not going back to the Sunday school lesson and saying, let us do evil that good may come. But it is the message of Scripture, it's the message of the Gospel that God will take the brokenness and He will take our place of trouble. Indeed, He came because we were in a place of trouble. And He came to redeem us. And He came... To, to bring life where death had reigned. 
He came to bring hope where there was no hope. He came to bring light into the midst of darkness. That's the gospel story. It's repeated over and over. And we're just looking at a couple little examples this morning. I thank God for his redeeming grace. Nothing I'm going to share this morning is new. But if you could leave here encouraged, if your faith in God's ability to redeem your personal place of trouble, whatever that is, whatever that was, the things you wish you could change. Maybe regrettable choices that others have made that have impacted you. Maybe regrettable choices you have made. If you could go home believing that somehow, sometime, some way, in some, beyond anything that you can even imagine right now, God can bring glory to himself in that messy place, then that would be good enough for me. We're going to consider a few different examples from Scripture, but as I mentioned, my text is in from Hosea. You know the prophet Hosea was called to a life of rejection and sorrow with an unfaithful wife. And in the vivid example of Hosea's marriage, God pleads with his people, his bride, to see how they had rejected him, how they had lived an adulterous life serving other gods. We're going to read the entire chapter, chapter 2, the entire chapter. And in the first verse, he's speaking to his son and his daughter, who were named in chapter 1. We have um, his son, who was actually younger than... Uh, so the son was... Ami, or am I, is it? Um, and that name meant, back in verse 9 of chapter 1, just keep in mind the meaning of these names, God said, call his name Loami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. The uh, prefix lo is, is not given in verse 1 of chapter 2, but it, I believe it's speaking of the same child. And then his sister, Loruhema, um, just called Ruhema in chapter 2, and that name meant, back in verse 6, she conceived again and bare a daughter, and God said unto him, to Hosea, call her name Loruhema, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Just keep in mind the meaning of those names. Chapter 2. Say unto your brethren, am I, and to your sisters, Ruhema, plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let, a, sorry, let her therefore put away her whoredom out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. 
Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers and she shall not overtake them and she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, that was, for then it was better with me than them. For she did not know that I gave her corn, her wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and I will recover my wool and my flax given to her to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the earth shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them. And she decked herself with her earrings and with jewels, and she went after her lovers, and she forgot me, saith the Lord. Written in prophetic language here. But you understand the picture that God is saying through the imagery of Hosea and his wife and children. Hosea is telling his children, go plead with your brothers and sisters. Plead with them. Plead with them to plead with their mother. So the message was to Israel. You've forsaken me. You've chased after all these other lovers and you said, they're the ones that give me my corn and my oil and my wine and my flax. That's who's been providing for me. That's where I get my provision and my gold. And God says, but that's not true. I'm the one who's provided for you. I'm the one who has cared for you. I'm the one who has been faithful. And because she forgot him, he said, I'm going to take it all away. And she will be destitute and naked. I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she said, these are my rewards that my lovers have given me. I'll make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I'm going to visit upon her the days of Balaam. And she will come to know herself. She will see herself. And in that state, and this is where it gets beautiful. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and as in the days when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that they shall call, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and thou shalt call me no more Baali. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the fowls of the air, with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. 
And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day. I will hear, saith the Lord. I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow on I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. There's a lot contained in this chapter, and I'm I'm not really going to work my way through it and, and teach what's all here, but I just want to point a few things out. So the message was there's going to be a time of suffering. You're going to take it all away and Israel is going to suffer. But in that, God offered a door of hope. And that's what we're going to be focusing on in verse 14 and 15. But let's just move through a little more. Verse 16, It shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me, and the word here means my husband or my lover, thou shalt call me my husband and no more call me my master. You're going to come back to me as my as your husband. I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And he talks about restoration. And then at the end of the chapter, uh, will come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I'll hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the Earth shall hear the corn, the wine, the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, which was the name of the first child. Um, which I believe it ties into that message from verse 4. The first son's name was Jezreel. For yet a little while I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. There's reference back to that. But the last verse is what I find so beautiful. Those names that I mentioned in chapter 1, we had Loruhema, which was no mercy. And I think in the in the original language, it would have been written, I will have mercy upon Loruhema. I will have mercy upon the one that I said, no more mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, I will say to to Loami, who was, ye are not my people, I will say to them, thou art my people. And the response, thou art my God. So there's a restoration spoken of here. And that's that's what we're getting at in verses 14 and 15 as well. God's pleading with Israel. And he tells them of the judgment to come and how they were going to suffer. But he doesn't leave Israel and, and he doesn't leave his wife, who see his wife there, he says in verse 14, Behold, I will allure her, I will draw her, bring her into the wilderness, I'll speak comfortably unto her, and I will give her her vineyards from thence. In the wilderness, there will be vineyards. And then the phrase that I'm using as my title this morning, I will give her her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. That's my title, the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Does anyone know anything about the Valley of Achor, what that's referring to? 
This refers back to the place where Israel entered Canaan, the place where Achan coveted and stole, or he took, they were to destroy Jericho entirely, but he took the goodly Babylonish garment and the 200 shekels of silver and that wedge of gold, that thing that he had to have, and then he couldn't do anything with it, so he buried under the floor of his tent. This was the place, the valley of Achor, the place where Israel was defeated at Ai because of sin in the camp. The place where 36, see they didn't send the, this was just a little town, this Ai, and they didn't send the whole army, they just sent a small group and 36 men lost their lives and it was all because of the sin in the camp. The place where Joshua, and I'll just read a few verses, and all Israel with them, they took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. The root word for Achan and Achor both means troublesome or to trouble. The idea of, of uh, roiling up waters is, is kind of the concept of the word. So we come back to Hosea. And God told the people, I'm going to give you the valley of Achor. I'm going to give you the place of trouble. The place that, the place of sin and judgment. The place of discouragement. The place of loss. And I'm going to take this valley of trouble. And what does he say? I'm going to give it to you for a door of hope. Door of hope. I don't know about you, but I think that's beautiful. I'll take this place of failure. I'll take this place of sin and trouble, this place that you look back on with regret, this place of bitter consequences, and I'm going to take this place where sin brought suffering. And because there was repentance, because they turned from it, because they came back to God, I'm not, I'm not avoiding that part, and we can't avoid that part, but when there is a Brokenness and, and restoration, God says, this very place, I give it to you for a door of hope. The place of discouragement. Friends, this morning we serve a merciful God. And I'm thankful for a door of hope. That, that valley of Acorn, I'll talk about this a little more later. That can be a whole lot of different things. In this case, we understand the story. It was a big deal, right? That he had sinned and they needed to suffer and die for it. All the nation suffered for it. Sometimes it's a little smaller than that for us. I think usually it is. But I'm guessing as some of you think about this, 
you know what your valley of Achor is. It's a place that you look back on with regret. Maybe a broken relationship that you... You often think about it. You regret it. Maybe it's some loss. Some failure. And I'm not minimizing anything that needs to happen to make that situation right with God. That's not what I'm talking I'm, I'm saying when that has been done, sometimes we live with regret. We live there more than we should. And we don't understand how God could ever take this and make something good out of it. That he could ever bring light into that shadowy spot in my life. Even though you don't understand how that could ever happen, because usually in the middle of it, we can't understand. Can you simply believe that God can do what he's done before? And he can turn that place of trouble into Dorfold. Maybe you actually understand that your valley of trouble is the end result of your own personal failure. There is sowing and reaping. We can't avoid that. There is sowing and reaping. You deliberately chose the wrong path and you look back with regret. And maybe you can hardly forgive yourself for it. I am not saying, hear me clearly, I'm not saying that God will miraculously change all the circumstances of reaping in your life because that doesn't happen. Sowing and reaping is not just God's vengeance. That's a law of being. When we sow, we reap. That's, that's a law of being, a law of, of creation, I guess maybe we'd call it. It's a timeless principle. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Sowing and reaping is a timeless principle, and you can't just say, well, now I've repented. There's no more reaping. That's not how life works. But I will tell you, I will tell you, that even in reaping, when we turn to God, when we turn in brokenness, He can pl- take a place of trouble and give beyond a door of hope. Beyond. And that doesn't necessarily mean like in Job's experience, his valley of Achor really turned around. He got twice as much as he'd ever had. He lost everything. Everything was gone. And in his faithfulness, you know the story, but at the end, there's joy, there's rejoicing, and he's, he's rewarded, he's blessed with twice as much as he had before. I'm not promising you that. It's not that um, linear. <laughs> I suffered this way, I lost this, so God's going to give me twice as That's not how it works. But a door of hope, seeing his goodness, seeing him work good in spite of my place of trouble, seeing a door of hope, that's better than 14,000 sheep anyway, don't you think? Who really wants 14,000 sheep anyhow? A door of hope. To just see that somehow... He can be, he can receive glory through this situation. Well. Okay. So we have, we have Solomon. 
we have God speaking to his people through Hosea to his wife. And we see Valley of Achor for a door. Somehow God turned those around. They're beautiful. We love that. But we have a hard time believing that that's real for us, don't we? Let me give you some more examples. And we don't, we're not going to take time to read all of these, but think about them. You know the stories. How about Joseph and his brothers? His brothers hated him and they resented that his dad um, favored him in the ways that he did. And so they, they sold him. They were going to kill him. But then they were merciful and they just sold him into slavery. That's, that's man's kind of mercy. And time goes on. And God has a way of bringing things around. And his brethren are there before him, and he tells them who he is with tears. And his brethren also went, and they fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? Understand verse 20. As for you, ye thought evil against me. But God... But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Joseph could see through and beyond that, that in spite of that wickedness, which was just as wrong as it had ever been, it was unkind, it was cruel to do what they did. But he said, but God, God's bringing a door of hope for his whole family because of what, through what had happened. He's redeeming the situation. Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them, he spake kindly unto them. You thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. How about Rahab, Canaanite woman, ungodly past history. And some people like to say that, well, that that harlot term could mean different things. You may believe that if you want, but I don't. I believe she was a harlot. I believe she was a harlot who had a growing faith in God. I believe she repented of her past. But she was spared. She recognized there was something different about the God of Israel. Not only was she spared, but she was married. She was adopted into the kingdom and part of the lineage of Christ. Her past was real. That hadn't changed. She was an ungodly woman. But she was redeemed. And that past no longer defined her future. There was a door of hope. Scripture bears testimony that she was a woman of faith. What's the theme that runs through each of these accounts? Friends, this morning I'm blessed when I consider how a gracious God reaches down with love and mercy and he can redeem the messy past. God, we looked at some examples, God redeemed some really, really regrettable choices. God redeemed the impetuous and rash actions of those wrapped up in jealousy, Joseph's brothers. And he brought good out of what was 
dark and evil. Only God can do that. If man tried, he'd make a mess of it. But only God can take a situation that's full of regret. Only God can take a broken vessel that's crushed and shattered and a life that has no bright tomorrow. Only God can turn that into something beautiful, something touched by his glorious grace. I looked at a few examples. Are you still tempted to believe, well, that just happened to some people in the Bible? How about Israel being led out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land? They're given the best of Canaan from a place of trouble to a bright future. They were redeemed out of bondage in Egypt. How about what we were reading? How about Israel's return from captivity? They were taken away because of their sin. Jerusalem was, the temple was destroyed. God withdrew his presence from the temple. The place was destroyed. They, they burned it with fire and they, they took all the gold. It was destroyed. It was rubble. But God brought them back. They rebuilt. They restored from a place of trouble to restoration. How about the New Testament? We have Peter boldly denying that he even knew Jesus. And short weeks later, boldly proclaiming that he was the Son of God. He could have lived with regret for that denial the rest of his life. It could have held him back from what God called him to be. How about Paul? From persecuting the church, from killing Christians, to blessing the church. When Saul was going about breathing threatenings and slaughter, as the term scripture uses, it's quite a word picture, he was breathing out threatening and slaughter against the church. How many people do you think had the audacity to pray that he would be saved? That's what God did. Do you have the audacity to pray for the most wicked man you've ever met, that he would be saved? Or do we sometimes pray that they would be stopped or that that somehow God would spare? I was humbled last night. One of the young men at Bible school said, not sure if he's courageous enough to say it, but would it be wrong to pray that God would stop this virus now? Obviously, we have to work through motives in doing so, right? But for his glory and according to his will, there's people suffering because of it. I was humbled because to me it all looked rather um, inevitable. Things spread. The Valley of Achor for a door of hope. Frankly, the Bible's full of these stories when you really start thinking about it. 
in the end. It's one big story of redeeming grace, right? Genesis 3, all the way through to restoration in, in, in Revelation. That's the gospel. And we say we believe it. Christ enters our darkness. When we were yet without sin, Christ died for the ungodly. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them. I love that word, to redeem them that were under the law. Matthew 20, verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom. A ransom. Over and over. We could spend all morning talking about that. But for you and I, are these just nice Bible stories from millennium gone by? Or do you believe that God's still doing that today? If I gave enough details, some of you would know the story. And, and I, I don't know how they're doing now, so I want to be careful. But, but how about a runaway teenager comes home as a pregnant, single teenager? And the future looks difficult. Questions were evident. They were heartfelt. Would any man ever want her? Her past, her present, the built-in family. But then one day, a bride, a groom, and a daughter, a godly husband, and I've wept tears at many weddings just because I'm kind of emotional, I guess. But that day was special. God redeemed a situation. Thinking of a good brother in the Lord, his journey went from conservative Mennonite home to a sinful youth and an immoral dating relationship and a pregnant bride. But today, he's faithful, effective minister of the gospel. And he speaks to youth in a way that connects with them. God's redeemed that situation. Thinking of a young couple at home. Regrettable choices. And we prayed for them. And I needed to... I needed to announce the excommunication of my nephew because of choices he had made. That was the sad part. But God redeemed. And he came back. And they came back. And they're committed to the church. And his young bride, who had no Christian background whatsoever, teaches the ladies' Sunday school class. God redeemed. Those choices, they were regrettable. They weren't God's will, but God redeemed them for his glory.
the stories go on and on. Those are the big things. But what about the little things? Those situations in your life where you just, it looks like everything's messed up. How can God bring good out of that? It's real at Bible school right now. How can a canceled Ireland tour and the whole tour perhaps being in question, maybe even finishing the term being in question, how can good come out of that? In the middle of the mess, it never makes sense. Never does. And when we insist on understanding at the time, we set ourselves up for trouble. A valley of Achor. When we need to understand, and this is our tendency, I believe it, there's two facts that will come into question every time when we insist on understanding. One, we will be tempted to believe. If I must understand, then I will be tempted to doubt that God is really in control. And if that one is not in question, this one certainly will be. How can a God who is in control of everything, who will not let anything happen to me without his slipping through his filter, then how can a God like that still be good in the middle of my situation? God's sovereignty and God's goodness. We set ourselves up for doubt. We set ourselves up for unbelief when we must understand in the middle of it. Are you okay with not understanding? I don't mean not understanding for a week or a few months. Some of the difficult valleys of Acor take years. Sometimes we never see the door of hope in our lifetime. Can we still believe? God somehow, somehow can make it good. I think most of you have heard or read The Fellowship of the Unashamed. I'm not going to read it all, but there's one line in there that gripped me. Um, I think one of the sisters had read this at our, our uh, preparatory service one year, and there was a line that just shouted to me that morning. It begins, as you know, I'm part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. And then it says, My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. And my future is secure. Was on. I'm finished with low living, cheap talking, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I won't read it all. Maybe you're not even at the stage where your present makes sense. But can you believe that the God who redeemed all these situations in Scripture 
can also redeem your valley of Achor for something, something good. And I, I don't really feel I know the church here real well anymore. There's families that I've only meet occasionally. So I can talk with freedom when I say this. There's so many situations that become a valley of acor to us. Maybe you also know what it's like to have a teenager that's making choices that you are concerned about. I know what it's like in a measure, but I watched my brother-in-law through that time, and it was it was hard to watch, to experience, and to walk with him. place of trouble it hits us deeply maybe that's your valley of acor maybe it can be anything maybe it's a financial loss a decision you made 20 years ago that you're still trying to recover from maybe it is your sin your failure and your mind keeps going back to that place. You've repented, you've, you've taken it to the cross, but the regrets sometimes consume you. Maybe you find the devil accusing you even though you've, you've repented, pointing to what you used to be. Maybe your valley of Achor is your background or your family situation. Maybe... It's a broken relationship that just is very real. Some reversal, some bad choice. I don't know what it is. But I think many of you have your own personal valley of acor, which is a valley of trouble. Maybe it's current. Maybe you're fearful about the current virus and what that means. I want to be real clear on one thing. When that valley of Achor represented sin and failure in your life, I talked about situations that God redeemed. I talked about my nephew who made choices that none of you would have approved of and we didn't, and God was displeased. But God redeemed it. Never, ever live in carelessness, assuming that God is going to make it all good someday. That's assuming the grace of God. It is only through turning to Him in repentance. For every beautiful story of redemption, like a couple I mentioned, for every prodigal that comes home, there's probably 50 or I don't know how many that never make it back. Don't ever assume that, oh, this will all turn out fine. I just want to enjoy this for a while. But for those who do repent and for those who turn to the Lord, there's redemption, there's hope. For those who have given those valleys of trouble to God, just trust Him. Trust Him. That He can show you. It it often takes time. Some of the deepest troubled valleys I've been through, it took a while. And some of them I still don't understand. 
But some of them I begin to see that that happened for a reason. I would never have chosen it. Would never have chosen it. But God works good in the valley of Achor. He gives us vineyards in the wilderness, like it said in that one verse. Isaiah 51, verse 3. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. Now get this. He will make her wilderness like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. I like that. That word picture again. Because we had a perfect garden. God created the world in beauty and perfection. Man lived in the Garden of Eden. But sin, separation from God, wilderness, those terms are closely associated. And yet he says, I'm going to make the wilderness like Eden and the desert like the Garden of the Lord. Friends, this morning, You could tell me about your valley of Acor and you could say, I don't what could good what good could come out of this? You don't understand, and I don't understand. But the same God who's done it over and over and over before, the same God who's all about redeeming darkness to light, the same God who's about restoration. He offers a door of hope for your valley. Believe it. Claim it for your valley of Acor.